When I was a kid, my dad had all sorts of phrases that he said, and I'll never forget, like, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, still remember that, money doesn't grow on trees, usually uttered after I left a light on in a room that I was no longer in, uh, early bird gets the worm, none of these are groundbreaking proverbs, uh, common phrases that a lot of dads say, and they were phrases my dad cataloged through the years, but for the first 14 years of my life, my father didn't know the Lord, and he didn't really know much of the Bible, so this was pretty much uh, the wisdom and the instruction that he used to raise me, uh, and yet there was one proverb of Mike Howard that he taught me before he was a Christian, and then after he was a Christian, he kept teaching it to me, and that proverb or that maxim or whatever you want to call it, that statement that he etched into my brain was, you reap what you sow. In fact, I can say this was his number one saying. This was his number one phrase. You reap what you sow. This week, I was struck by that as I thought about it. The fact that the most regular principle that my unbelieving father taught to me before he was saved was a Bible verse. How good is God that that was the case? God is amazing. He is so gracious. But indeed, it is a Bible verse. Do not be deceived, Paul says in Galatians 6-7. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. My dad didn't figure out that part about revering God until October of 1998. But even before that, he was teaching my sister and I the basic principle of sowing and reaping. What that shows is that in God's common grace... Even lost men know this truth. You reap what you sow. Nature has shown this to us in the fields. The hard teacher of consequences has shown this to us in our lives. You see people wrestling with this in false religions that they make up, coming up with false systems of belief like reincarnation because they see there is some aspect uh, of you reap what you sow in the world. They've gotten it wrong in their attempt to codify it, in their attempt to make a belief out of it, but they see it. It is the reality that, that hangs over our existence. God will not be mocked. What you do matters. You reap what you sow. And tonight we see a reaping. We see a harvest. We see two of them, in fact. There's a wheat harvest, a harvest of the earth, and then there's a grape harvest. And in these two harvests, what is sown is going to be rooted up, and what is planted is going to be pulled up from the soil. It will be placed before the judgment throne of the one who owns the fields and owns the vineyards, and what is sown will be reaped. We are at the end of four of seven cycles in our study of Revelation. Each one of these cycles has shown us the age of the church from a different perspective. That time from Jesus' ascension, He dies, He resurrects, He ascends into heaven. That time in between His ascension and ultimately when He's going to return one day, we call this the age of the church. It's been going on now for about 2,000 years, and each one of these cycles is showing us the age of the church from a different perspective. We saw the time between the first and second coming of Christ through John's vision of Jesus in the midst of the seven churches. We saw the age of gospel witness from another perspective in the seven seals, and then in the third cycle in the seven trumpets, and in the cycle we've just gotten done with in Revelation 12-14, through there's been this war going on between the dragon, Satan, and God. Another way for us to understand what is happening in the world around us. Another way for us to understand the, the epic battle between the Lord and His enemies. If you side with God and the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, what you're going to see tonight is you're a part of one harvest. But if you side with the dragon and his beast, and his lying false prophet, then you will be a part of a different harvest. The scene at Revelation 14 tonight, make no mistake, is the end of the world. 
We've seen the end already in different language in the other cycles, but with each cycle, the language of judgment becomes more clear, it intensifies, and it is more vivid here than it has been thus far in Revelation. For a believer, when you read verses 14 through 20, there is a relief. There is a promise of rest that is to come. A promise that God sees what is happening in the world, that nothing is is going beyond His notice. A, A promise that ultimately, justice will be brought to creation. But for the unbeliever here, there's no rest. There's an urgent warning to repent, to stop rebelling against God, to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. So, verse 14, Revelation 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Father, I pray that you would give us a clear understanding of the word you've spoken. I pray that you would give us a really clear picture of the end tonight so that we could deal with the reality of eternity in the here and now. We need to, God. We need to. Even if we know You, God, we have to square up with eternity. We have to square up with the danger that faces those that are around us. There's nobody, Lord, that's going to be able to read this text tonight and get out from under the gravity of it. It's weighty. It's heavy. But it's the truth about the end. And we can't run from it. And so where we are to find rest, help us to find rest. Where we are uh, to be compelled to go and be more obedient to go and tell, I pray that we would do that. And, and where, Lord, there are folks that are, that are in darkness tonight, they don't know you, and then you're going to open their eyes, Lord. Open eyes. We ask you would open eyes to the beauty of who your Son is, to the joyful life He offers, and to the rescue He provides. We pray this in His name. Amen. Chapter 14 starts with a phrase, and it's a phrase that you've seen before. It says, then I looked, and behold. And when John looks up there, he says, uh, what does he see? He sees the Lamb. He looks up on Mount Zion, and on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Then we had this message from the three angels, which were a warning to the unbelieving world and a call on the church to hold on. Now you get to the final section of chapter 14, and we see this phrase again. Then I looked, and behold. This is how verse 14 starts. It's the same way chapter 14 started. Then I looked, and behold. When, when we looked and we beheld at the beginning of chapter 15, uh, 14, who did we see? We saw Jesus. Clearly, the Lamb standing on Zion. Then I looked, and behold, who do we see? Well, no surprise, we see Jesus again. But this time, it's not a picture of Christ the Lamb. It is a picture of Christ as a victorious, uh, victorious harvester. And so our first point tonight is this. In the end, there will be a harvester. In the end, there will be a harvester. Jesus is seated on a white cloud as one like a son of man. These are the same words that were used to describe him in chapter 1. There John said, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. Same words Daniel used to describe him when he saw him in the vision of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, Daniel said, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That is Jesus. The Gospels call Jesus the Son of Man 80 times. And yet, despite all of that, some people really bristle at the idea that this is Jesus. They really have a hard time with that because in verse 15, he gets a command from an angel. And so people are like, hey, this can't be Jesus because God the Son doesn't take commands from angels. He made angels. He doesn't take commands from angels. But with John's, then I looked and behold language, and using that phrase, one like a son of man, clearly this is Jesus and not just an angel and not some created being when you get to verse 15 then and you see jesus getting what seems to be a command from an angel you don't need to panic we know that angels get their commands from the father particularly when it comes to events surrounding the end mark chapter 13 verse 32 says but concerning that day or that hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father the angels don't have this knowledge about when the harvest time is coming intrinsically they don't have that within them they had to get that from the father the father is the one that has this knowledge so that shows us we're definitely dealing with final judgment here And when that judgment comes, it is not an angel who will come on a cloud of glory and hold the sickle and wear the victor's crown. Instead, we know that it is Christ who will do that. And that's what we have him doing here in verse 14. He is receiving the command not from the angel, but he's receiving it indirectly from his father. Let's take some time with this picture of the Savior. Think about what he's doing right now. Right now, don't think just of Jesus having existed 2,000 years ago because we know that He is the first and the last. We know that He has always been and that He is and He always will be. So right now, Jesus is seated, uh, seated. He is seated in a glory that you and I could only dream to catch a sliver of. Okay, That's where He's seated right now at the right hand of God the Father. And there He loves you. And there, right now at this moment, He prays for you. And He thinks about you moment by moment. And He watches over every second that you live in every numbered day that you have. That's what He's doing right now. But when He gets up for the harvest, this is what He will look like. And it's just as beautiful. What I want to show you is that all the tenderness that you experience in your daily care is still there in this first harvest of the earth. Christ comes on a cloud. We're tempted to think of a fluffy white cloud. Like He just grabbed one of the ones that was in the sky today and He was just like, yeah, this one. I'll ride this one. Or maybe you think of a dark storm cloud like the ones we saw in the sky over the last couple of weeks with majestic flashes of lightning in it. And so maybe he said, nah, maybe this will more fit what what I need here. So maybe that's what you think of. But in reality, we shouldn't be thinking of weather at all. We should be thinking of the Old Testament. This is not just some random cloud in the sky that Jesus has ordained to be his chariot. This is the, the very glory cloud of God. The cloud that fills Solomon's temple when the ark is brought in for the first time in 1 Kings 8 when it says, the priest came out of the holy place. A cloud filled the house of the Lord. And then in some of the saddest words in the Old Testament, it's the same cloud that is removed from the temple because the people are disobedient to God and as part of uh, God's discipline upon them, His glory leaves the temple. Ezekiel 10, verse 18, then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. Sad words. In the New Testament, when Peter and James and John see Jesus transfigured on the high mountain, His clothes are gleaming white. His face is bright like the sun. And you have Moses there and Elijah there talking to Him when suddenly this cloud overshadows them. 
says when uh, he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew Henry called this the Shekinah cloud of God. The emblem of His presence. The emblem of His glory. And so the picture here is Christ coming to judge the world on a cloud of glory. And this is as He said it would be. Then He will appear in heaven, the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Christ has a golden crown on his head. There's two types of crowns in the Greek. There is uh, the Greek word we get our English word diadem from, and that is the sort of crown that a king would wear. But that's not what Jesus is wearing here. The word that he, uh, the, the crown he's wearing here, that word would more accurately translate to wreath. It's the victor's crown. This is the wreath that was placed on the head of the Olympic athlete who won their competition, who stood head and shoulders above the rest. After they won, they would get to then go sit with the emperor and sit with the dignitaries in the stands with the wreath upon their head watching the rest of the games. Why is Jesus wearing the competitor's crown and not the royal crown in Revelation 14? I mean, He is the King of Kings. We, we know that. We know the ultimate crown of royalty, the ultimate uh, diadem of sovereignty belongs to Him and to Him alone. Right? But why is He not wearing it here? Why the wreath here? Because what John is seeing is that this harvester, this Jesus, is uniquely qualified to be the judge. To be the one with the sickle in His hand. Because He is the Son of Man who has run His race. And He has proven to be the victor. And He has sat down at the most dignified position, at the highest place of honor at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so, as we run this race, who do we look to? It's actually not the great cloud of witnesses. It's not those that have gone on before us and have been faithful. We're surrounded by them. We consider their lives. But when we need to hold on, when we need to endure, we look to the one they look to. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. The cross is set before Christ. He endures it. He despises the shame. He rises again. He overcomes, defeats our sin, crushes death. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so the idea of Hebrews 12 is run your race with endurance, understanding that Jesus has already run His. And in fact, you can run because He was punished for your pride when He ran His race. You can run He'll qualify you to run because He was massacred for the mire that you made for yourself. He was judged for your injustice. He was a substitute for your sin. And then He resurrected from the grave. And when He came out of that tomb, He put the proof on the table and He said, I am the Son of God. The death that I died is satisfactory to save any who would believe. I am the Lord. And then He ascended on high. And He is the Son who must be kissed lest you perish. He is the Lamb who stands on Zion. He is the victor who has gone and competed and won. And He is seated on the cloud of glory in the place of unparalleled honor, ready to judge this world in righteousness. And here He has the sickle in hand. The sickle is an agricultural tool, a farming tool. If you walked into a courtroom and the judge had a sickle in his hand, you'd be like, well, this is out of place. That's not a gavel. What you got a farming tool for? That's exactly what Jesus the harvester has here. He's got the farming tool to prove he is indeed the harvester. His judgment is a harvest. The sickle was used as a tool of separation. 
separating the wheat from the weeds, separating the wheat from the chaff. And the imagery that is in play has an anchor both in the Old Testament and in the New, and both are very, very important for us to understand the meaning of the text and for us to understand the grain harvest here. First of all, we've got an anchor in the Old Testament to help us understand. Joel 3, very uh, crucial passage for Revelation 14. Joel 3 and Revelation 14, they are uh, as, as friendly as it gets when it comes to Old Testament and New Testament passages. Lay them right next to each other. Parallel passages. You'll recognize it in the language. Put in the sickle, Joel says, for the harvest is ripe. Does this sound familiar? Go in, tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. So that is one anchor that we have in the Old Testament helping us to understand what is going on here. And then we have an anchor in the New that helps us understand even more. There we have Jesus' parable about the weeds. Topic everybody's always eager to discuss, right? Weeds. Most people don't care about weeds, don't want to talk about weeds. God incarnate looks at weeds and says, let me explain to you the whole church, let me explain to you every human soul, and let me explain to you the end of the world from weeds. Only God, right? And so he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who goes and he sows uh, seed in his field. And then at nighttime, that man has enemies who sneak in and they sow a bunch of uh, bad seed in the field, a bunch of, bunch of uh, seed that's going to ultimately not bear wheat, but bear weeds. So when the grain does come up, and the man and his servants go to inspect. They're like, uh-oh, we got wheat and we got weeds. This is a problem. We've got wheat and we've got tares. What are we going to do? And the servants say, well, let's rip them up. We've got to get all the weeds out of here. And the master says, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that because if you rip it up, well, you're going to take with, with it all the good grass, right? All, all the good wheat. You don't want to take the good grain out of here as you're trying to get rid of the tares. And so he says, just let it all grow to harvest and the reapers will separate it at harvest. And at harvest time, the wheat is put into a storehouse and the weeds are burned up. And the disciples don't know what this means and maybe not wanting to expose that in front of people, they wait till they get alone and they're like, hey, Jesus, what does this mean? And he says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. And so that's exactly what we're seeing here. Our tender shepherd who has guarded our souls from his father's side now will judge the world from a cloud of glory. His good grain will be separated from the rebellious weeds. The sickle will gather the wheat into the barn and deal with the harvest of the grain distinctly differently than the weeds are dealt with. The weeds that, that, that don't belong in the storehouse. The tares that don't belong in the storehouse because they are not the possession of the Master. They were not planted by the Master. And in the rest of these verses, we will see His grace toward the grain as He personally uses His sickle to gather it, but we will also see the wrath that He has for those who live in a stiff-necked rebellion against Him. You see His love for His children, but you also see the fate of those who reject the One like the Son of Man. The fate of those who take the mark, who bow down to the beast and the dragon. We see the wrath of our tender victor. One harvester and two harvests. And so let's look at them for the rest of our time. Jesus swings the sickle first in a harvest of redemption. A fully ripe harvest of righteousness brought forth by the saving power of God and the loving death of the One who has the sickle in His hand. The angel in verse 15 calls with a loud voice to Christ and tells Him to put His sickle into the harvest, to reap. One of three angels we, we see in this passage. These are the reapers. Jesus said, that it would be angels who come with Him as reapers. In Matthew 13, verse 39, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. In the church, we've got wheat and tares. We're preaching the gospel. There's a lot of people claiming to believe, and what this parable is showing us is that we've got some in the church who are, are wheat, and, and they are producing fruit, and they have shown that they know the Lord Jesus Christ. We have some that are not. They're rebellious. They're actually living the way that the rest of the world is living. But all this will be separated in the end. And these reapers, these angels, will help with this work. And here the hour to reap has come. And Jesus is here with the reapers. So this is our second point tonight. In the end, there will be a harvest of redemption. There's a harvester, and there will be a harvest of redemption. And we see this in verses 15 and 16. We know the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. The harvest of the earth is a harvest of grain growing from the earth. I'm no farmer, you all know that, but I read online that <laughs> you know grain is ripe when grain is dry. When grain has a hard crust, it's time to cut, it's time for the sickle to swing. What makes the harvest of redemption dry? What lets Jesus the harvester know it is time for the sickle to swing? Well, the answer is connected with those who have not worshipped the beast. Who did not bow down to the beast? Who didn't take the mark of the beast? Who didn't believe the lies of, of the false prophet who looks like a lamb and speaks like a dragon? Who does not give in and go on with the world? Who, who doesn't reject the gospel of the kingdom? Well, according to Revelation 13, verses 7 and 8, it's the saints whose names are written in the book of life from before time. War is made on them. Also it was allowed the beast to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Sounds like the one who's like the Son of Man, doesn't it? Because remember, Satan's trying to counterfeit Jesus with this beast. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Who, who's not going to worship the beast? Those whose names written in the book of life, written before the foundation of the world. The book of the Lamb. That's who's not going to worship the beast. Those who will worship are, the, are, are those whose names are not written in the book. So then, the harvest is ripe when every name written in the book has repented of sin and trusted in Jesus. The harvest is ripe when the full number of God's sheep have come into the fold. The harvest is ripe when the Spirit works new birth in the final heart that's going to believe. And you and I have absolutely no idea when that time is going to be. We have no idea how many names are written in the Lord's precious book and His infinite wisdom. We have no idea when the harvest will be fully ripe when the crust will be dry, we don't know. Here's what we know. We're supposed to be sowing seed. We're supposed to tell the world. And we know that we should be praying for more laborers to come to bring this day to pass. In Matthew 9, Matthew writes, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You'll only pray that, by the way, if you are actually going and telling. That's the way that works. It's hard to get on your knees before God and go, God, send people out into the harvest. I mean, not me, but somebody, right? That's a hard prayer to offer up to God when He's told you to go also. And so the only way to really pray this is to pray like an evangelist, like we talked about on Sunday. This is an evangelist prayer. The evangelist prays, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Lord, send laborers out into the harvest. And the evangelist says, I will go as well. But the bottom line is, the harvest is plentiful and then one day it will be ripe. And at that time, our work of spreading the seed of the kingdom will be over and it will be time for the harvester to harvest. This harvest comes in a single swing of the sickle, which is beautiful. It's different 
than the second harvest that you see in verses 17 through 19 because number one, Jesus is the one swinging the sickle. And what that shows is he's deliberate with his people. Not that he's not deliberate in his wrath. Not that he's careless in his wrath or reckless in his wrath. There's no way, shape, or form that God is reckless and careless. Instead, we are to see that he's like the farmer who has tended his crop through hard weather. And he's fended off the threats. And now it is his joy to purposefully go and to carefully gather up the grain for his barn. In the second harvest, the angels do the reaping. Now, they do this, as we've seen, at the Father's command. They do this under the watchful, authoritative gaze of Jesus Christ, the judge. But what we see here is different because Jesus is directly seeing to the harvest of redemption as He gathers up His people. Secondly, as He gathers up His people, He does it in one swing. There's going to be two actions performed in the second harvest, but in the first uh, harvest, it's one motion. When when the, the grape harvest happens, the rebellious are gathered, and then the rebellious are punished. But there's no second action in the first harvest. Why is that? Because there's no punishment to be had. Believers have no condemnation because Jesus Christ has already received it for them on the cross. He's already bore their punishment. He has suffered for their sin. Therefore, they're simply gathered by His sickle and they rest in His storehouse. Paul has told us what it will be like when that sickle swings. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. It will be the most beautiful cry creation has ever heard. With the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so we will always be with the Lord. His harvest. His people. A harvest of grain. A harvest of sheep. A harvest of of members for His own body. A harvest of living stones for His temple. A harvest of ambassadors for His kingdom. A harvest of glory for the harvester. And all that love and all that tenderness He has for you at the right hand of God at this moment in time, it will all be there when the harvester stands up with the sickle in His hand and says, the time has come. The harvest is ripe. And He reaps. But it's not the only harvest we see in the passage. In verses 17 through 20, you get another one, and this one has two parts to it. Second angel comes from the temple in heaven with a sharp sickle as well, in verse 17. And then a third angel comes out from the altar and has authority over the fire in the altar, in verse 18. And he calls out to the angel with the sickle to gather the clusters from the vines of the earth because the grapes are ripe. We're not out in the the field with the grain anymore. We're in the vineyard now. This is a grape harvest. So you can see why I said we're dealing with two different harvests. There are some Bible commentators that have struggled with this, and I'm not sure why. One's a grain harvest from the earth. One's a grape harvest. One is done by Jesus. The other is done by the angels under He and His Father's authority. One is done with direct action Uh, One direct action, I should say, while the other requires two. They're different. They're different. The angel with the sharp sickle comes from the temple. And the one who commands the reaping comes from the altar and has authority over the fire. As we're considering final judgment, clearly we're also meant to be thinking about Old Testament worship with these images. Temple, altar, fire. These are Old Covenant worship images. Symbols, they represent Old Covenant practices performed before God at His instruction in the temple. In the Old Testament, the altar of sacrifice was the place where the lamb was killed, where the lamb was consumed by fire. That practice of animal sacrifice had a purpose. Leviticus 4 verse 35 says, And all its fat he shall remove, speaking of the priest, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the top of the Lord's food offerings. 
And then listen to what it says. It says, And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Leviticus 5, verse 10, you get it again. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. Do you see the point of the sacrifices? The point of what took place on the altar? With the blood and with the fire? It was all about atonement. It was all about sin being covered up. And yet, we know from the New Testament that those animals had not one drop of saving power in their blood. God didn't create one cow with magic, sin-forgiving power in the liquid that, that flowed through its veins. Not one. Hebrews 10, verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You say, well, then what were they doing back there? What's going on with the, the fat of the lamb and the blood and the fire? What's happening here? Well, when those Old Testament believers were making sacrifice according to the law, they're not trusting in the dead animal. They're trusting in the God who commanded it. They're, they're asking for His grace by faith. And in doing this, they're believing in faith, looking forward to the Messiah. Did they understand the full mystery of the gospel? No, that's why they did it in faith. We look back in faith, having the mystery of the gospel revealed. But anybody who's ever been saved by the grace of Yahweh through faith is saved by looking to His Son, Jesus Christ, who secures an eternal redemption. Old Testament saints, they looked forward in faith. New Testament saints, we look back in faith. But it's Jesus who brings the salvation. Hebrews 9, verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He will purify your conscience. He will forgive your sin. He will save you. His blood has the power to forgive every sin that you've ever committed from the seemingly smallest sin to the most heinous one that you could think of. Public sins, private sins, all of it. But the key is there must be faith. And not just that sort of faith where you believe with your head, but you know your hands and your feet act totally differently. That's not real faith. That's just agreeing with something, but not really trusting in it. Because if you agree with something here and you've really trusted in it with your soul, you're going to see that come out of your hands and feet in some sort of change. If there's a real trusting, surrendering faith, a saving faith, there's going to be transformation. There's going to be change. We're talking about a faith in which you stop believing there's anything in you or anything in this world that is worth the full weight of your trust. And then you say... There's no created thing worth the full weight of my trust, but you, Jesus, are. And so I give up on a life that I run. I give up on a life where I'm trying to work off my sin with some sort of good works I'm mustering up before you. I give up on my selfish ambition. I give up on the natural inclinations of my flesh and me giving in to them, ever making me happy. I give up on all of that. I surrender to you. I believe here. I trust here. Change me. And He does. He will transfer you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Beloved Son. You'll be a new creation. You'll have a transformed life. Night and day difference. The world will see it. The world will know it. They'll know it because you will be a person going in the opposite direction of the masses. The masses are following the dragon. Following the beast. Loving their life in Babylon. It's easier that way. The world is hard and lumbering around with the rest of the lemmings is, is a whole lot more simple than getting cut and bruised on the narrow road that Christ has set for us. And so when you follow Christ on the narrow road, you're going to feel the direction of your life constantly rubbing up against the force of the stream that's going the other way. And that is a sign that you live by faith and that the grace of God has changed you. And this sort of faith sets you on a course 
where you live for God every day and you experience His joy. And you know when you go to bed at night, my faith has been credited, credited to me by God as righteousness the same way it was with Abraham. Because when you believe God and you trust in His Son who bore your sin, you are given the gift of righteousness in return as your new spiritual clothes. And when the Father looks at you, He sees the righteousness of His perfect Son. Go to sleep on that every night. That'll get you to bed eventually. When others stay awake, that'll get you to sleep. When the sickle swings for the redeemed, they're brought into the storehouse of God without any issue. Why? Because they've been covered in the perfect righteousness of the one who sits in the cloud. But these angels come from the temple and from the altar. Why? Why is that? Why do they come out to judge from the temple and the altar? They come out from the temple and the altar because they went, they looked, there was no sacrifice there. There was no payment for sin there. The fire of judgment rained down on Christ. And so anybody who does not trust in Him, they have no sacrifice. They have nothing to atone for their sin. Therefore, the angels come to reap. Hebrews 9, verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you reject the blood of the Lamb, you have no forgiveness. And so the angels emerge from the temple and the altar, the place where the sacrifice is made, because if you reject Christ, there's no sacrifice for you. There's no fire to be poured out on the altar. The fiery punishment and the wrath stored up for your sin will be your own. So number three, in the end, there will be a harvest of judgment. You see exactly what it looks like in verses 19-20. through 20. The imagery is hard. It demonstrates the absolute terror that will come with the wrath and the judgment of a holy God. There are two actions of judgment in this wrath. There's the gathering and there's the pressing. The gathering takes place in verse 19. The unbelieving of the earth are gathered up like grapes and they're thrown into the winepress of the justice of God, the winepress of His wrath. That's not a quick wrath. That's not a knee-jerk wrath. That's not a, a wrath that must be vented irrationally at the moment it's detected, the way the wrath of so many men uh, tends to be. This is a wrath that's long-suffering. It's a slow wrath. How many rainbows have appeared since the days of Noah, showing over and over God is merciful not to destroy humanity for the plethora of sin they heap up every waking second? How many nights have come and gone where just in the dreams of humans God has seen unspeakable lust and hate and yet He is resolved to judge only when the harvest time comes? God is so kind in His patience towards humanity that His wrath can only be seen as rightful and even merciful in how He has chosen to dispense it. But the patience of the one who is wrathful does not take away from the gravity of his anger towards sin. In verse 20, the winepress is trodden outside the city. That is a sign of judgment. Christ was crucified outside the city. He was rejected. And if you reject Him, then you die outside the city. If you reject the judgment He received for your sins, then you go outside of the city and you receive judgment on your own. And as if that is not a picture that is bad enough, when you realize what cities John, the, the, the city John's actually talking about here, it becomes all the more horrible. Because he's talking about the city of heaven. In Revelation 22, verse 15, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. They die outside the eternal city in the wine press of wrath. The image of the wine press is from Joel 3. You remember it? We read it earlier. It's a symbol of God's judgment. And as he judges, those in the press of his wrath are crushed for eternity. The blood flows as high as the horse's bridle and fills 1,600 stadia. 
The horse's bridle, it's on its head. If the blood has filled the entire battlefield to the point that the horses are drowning, that means it's absolute carnage. 1600 stadia. 1600 is the, uh, it's got the square, 16, I, I'm not a good mathematician, help me out. 1600 is the square root of 40, that's right. Say it loud. 1600 is the square of 40. I had it written down wrong and I knew it as soon as I read it. 40, this is right, 40 is 4 times 10. Look at, look at math, mom, I can do it. So all throughout the Bible, you say, okay, big deal. All throughout the Bible, four is the number used to describe the completeness of the earth. The four winds of the earth, four corners of the earth. Ten tends to be the number used in the Bible to describe the completeness of man's kingdom. So you get John's point here with the 1600 stadia. The blood covers the entirety of the earth. It's global judgment. It's earthwide devastation. It is the end of the world as you know it. God will not be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. A life lived rejecting God, the one who made you. Rejecting Christ, the one who was given to die for you. Rejecting the Spirit of God who calls out to you. is a life in which you are sowing destruction. And what we see in this passage is that if you sow destruction, destruction will be reaped. It will be harvested. There's a harvest of redemption, and there's a harvest of judgment. There are two ways to live, and there are two ends to that living. You sow, and you will reap. I urge you to deal with this passage tonight squarely. And when I say that, I mean shoulder up, look it in the eye, and deal with it. Don't think about what it means for the person next to you. Don't think about what it means for somebody who maybe has already passed away. I had that thought when I was reading this passage tonight. thought about people I know that I fear died without the Lord, but that's not really going to do much for my soul right now. I've got to square up and deal with this text. I think it's easy when we're alive and we're healthy and we're doing well to think things like judgment from a holy God are far off or they're never going to come. I do that with dentist appointments. Get a dentist appointment in, in November. Ah, it'll never even show up. It'll never even happen. In my mind, I'll just put it way out there. You know what I mean? Box it up. Yeah, I don't want to think about that. And that's what people do with the judgment of God. They box it up and they say, I don't want to think about that. I'm going to tell you something. My job has required me to sit at deathbeds quite often. And I can tell you that people don't talk like that in the end. They do not. They don't box it up. Meh. No. They're very aware in the end that what I did in my life matters. They're very aware that what they sowed, they're going to reap. Did my life count? Do people really know who I am? Did I, did I do enough for the people that I love? These are the sort of big questions that start getting asked. You don't need to wait for that. The text has fast-forwarded you to the end. Richard Baxter said that if you could take anybody to the end of their life and at the moment of their death say, hey, in a few moments, you're going to be in heaven or hell. Make your pick. Every single person's going, I need heaven. I mean, come on. Obviously. Eternal glory, eternal punishment. Not a hard choice, right? And so Baxter says, if you know that's what you're going to choose in the end, why would you not choose it now? You reap what you sow. Sow faith. Turn from sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus tonight. You're not shut up in the, the darkness of your lostness and, and the desperation of damnation. You're not in hell tonight. Repent. Life is there for you tonight. I'll go to Baxter one more time before I close it up. The old soul doctor says, Life is before you, and you may have it on reasonable terms if you will. 
Yea, on free cost if you will accept it. The way of God lieth plain before you. The church is open to you. You may have Christ and pardon and holiness if you will. What say you? Will you or will you not? If you say nay or nothing and still go on, God is witness. And this congregation is witness. And your own consciences are witnesses. How fair an offer you had this day. Remember, you might have had Christ and would not. Remember when you have lost it that you might have had eternal life as well as others and would not. All because you would not turn. And he's right, indeed, you will remember. On the day when the wine press closes, you will remember you heard that this day was coming. That terrible scene does not need to be. Is Jesus wrathful? Yes. Because he hates evil, because he is a good judge. But is he tender? Turn to him, and you will find that there is no one more tender and gentle than him. And he will give you the gift of eternal life. God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the scriptures. I thank you for eternal life. I thank you for the offer of salvation and that it's not too late for anybody that's here. Breath in the lungs, hope for the soul. Call people to yourself tonight, God. Open eyes to the glory of who Jesus is. Lord, if just the weight of eternity tonight is heavy upon us, I pray that it would compel us to just go out into the highways and the byways looking to share Jesus on adventure with You, looking for the next good work that You have planned out for us. Who are we going to tell? Who are we going to tell? The illustration from the sermon works for us as evangelists as well, Lord, for if we had anybody before us and it was the final few moments of their lives, we would plead with them to turn to You. Why would we not plead with them now? May people believe. May your people go and tell so that more and more can believe. Thank you for the eternal gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.